thanks and praise for the gift of our Savior Jesus. We thank you that he's come, and as he's come, he's brought light. We thank you that he is the light of the world, and that in his light we see light. You've opened our eyes, and you've called us to yourself. you called us to be one with you, part of your light. And Lord, we pray that as we as we look at what you've done, as we recall Jesus made flesh the light of the world, that you would encourage us. Encourage us to be sons of light that walk in light. Lord, encourage us to hide nothing, to put away covering our faults and sins, and to be exposed before you, made and cleansed into a righteous and holy people. We thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness and your love. We thank you for our Savior, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen. If you would turn back to John chapter 1, and we're going to look briefly at John 1 and Genesis 1 together. These are very, very familiar passages. And then look a little bit deeper in John about how he sees Jesus coming as the light and the effects that 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 light has on the world. Light is, in a, light is interesting. I, in part, study light, plasma, the, the other work that I, I, I work on at 3M. I, I study the effects, how to make the light, how to, how to make it work, how to use it for optics and, and to change and bend the light. And God has granted men the ability to, to use it, to, to light up like this room, to give us light so we can read, to bend it and create it so we can read at, at night on all of our millions of devices. But all of those pale in comparison to Jesus. And in the middle of creation, he came as light. So recall with me again what John says, in the beginning was the word. And John is introducing for us a new creation, but he goes back to the beginning of the first creation. In the beginning was the Word, and and John is ruminating on Genesis 1. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being by Him, and nothing came into being that has come into being apart from Him. And in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. So John, as he thinks, he's thinking about Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void. And it was dark. And in that darkness, the Spirit hovered over the surface of the deep, and the first thing God said was, let there be light. Light is the first part of creation. It's essential. It's primal. Without it, none of the rest of creation makes sense. And John, as he's thinking about this, he says, In him, in the word that spoke was life, and that life was the light of men. All the way back to the beginning, light comes from Jesus, the word. The spoken word, God speaks, and out of nothing he creates. And John says that, that light that came forth was an expression of the life held in the word. It is Jesus. And that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness could not overcome it. And so as we think about Genesis 1, juxtaposed against John 1, the first thing that we can say is in that day one of creation, as God spoke and light was made, there was no luminary bodies, there was no sun, no moon, no stars on day one of creation, on day one of the first beginning. 
Instead, God spoke and there was light. That light came forth from God himself. And God said that the light would be separate from the darkness. This is the job of the light, to be other than darkness, to hold darkness back. And so he separated day and night, and he gave them the names of day and night. But God himself is the one that holds the authority to push back darkness, to hold it at bay. God is the one that issues forth the light. There's no sun, moon, and stars on day one. And so the light comes forth. And that's our first point, is that God is the one. God is the one that that brings the light. He's the one that separates light and darkness. And in that first darkness, there's there's no hint of evil. Instead, the earth was created formless and void. It was dark. But there was no sin yet. And yet still, God spoke forth light and separated it from darkness. As John thinks and speaks about darkness, we we add to it, he adds to it, rightly so, the idea of evil and sin. But that's not because the darkness was sin. That's because as light comes in, as the morning dawns on the first day, and then by the time we we hit the eighth, men who sin seek cover in the darkness. They're always looking backwards. And so if you would, turn with me to Genesis, and I want to look at day four to understand a little bit more about how God intended light to function in his creation. And so rereading these verses then, starting in verse 14, in the middle of the week, on the fourth day, God said, let there be light bearers in the firmament of the heavens, to separate day from night and let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and years. The light has been on for the first three days, and here on the fourth day, God makes and hangs the light-bearing bodies that we know as the sun, the moon, and the stars. In the midst of the expanse between the waters above and the waters below, they're hung there, and they're hung there for this same purpose, to separate day from night and to be sought for signs, seasons, for days, for years, to be lights in the firmament, to give light on the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night, and he made the stars also. And God placed them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night, to separate the light from the darkness, and God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning a fourth day. When God created the light bearers, he describes for us what their role is, what light does, biblically. The first thing that it does is be separate. It separates darkness. Light has the job of separating darkness, but God adds unto that detail so that we can understand, and you could include all of this in the role of separating light from darkness. But notice that here on the fourth day that God delegates the authority of separating light and dark. And he delegates it to his creation, to the sun and the moon, the greater and the lesser light. And that's something that he's he's already done and he does consistently in creation. God makes of himself. He expresses himself in creation. And then he delegates that authority. Ultimately, he delegates it to mankind. But here we have, in the beginning, God made the sun, moon, and the stars, and we'll see that that ultimately is given to mankind as well. But here in the beginning, God hung in the heavens to separate day from night, the sun, the moon, and the stars. And 
The first additional detail that he gives in verse 14 is that they would be for signs, for seasons, for days, and for years. And so as you consider light, day and night, light marks time. Light is a, a, a lamp. Without day and night, we would not have time. It would just be eternal darkness. So the day comes, the morning dawns, and you have another day. And that's how God created the world. There was evening and there was morning, day one, because there was light. And so God gives the light, as we understand it, for days and for years, but there's more detail there. He gives it for signs and for seasons. The word signs is the word that's used throughout the Old Testament for covenant signs. So when God puts the bow in the clouds, in the heavens, so that he looks through it and men look at it, it is a sign hung in the heavens for us to look at, for God to look at, so that the covenant is remembered. But even that in and of itself is necessary because there's evening and morning, evening and morning, evening and morning, and time continues. And so signs are given as a memorial of what God has declared and made to be so, of the promises that he's made. And they, they hang in the heavens, or as we'll find out later, the people are placed in the heavens, and they bear those signs themselves, that God is faithful. God will be faithful to his promises. They will not be overcome, as we'll find in the book of John. And so those signs continue. But signs themselves are eschatological. They're looking for the fullness. If we come to the end and there's no longer any night and God himself is in the temple issuing forth light as day that does not end and his people are around him, the need for those signs begins to disappear. We'll touch on that a little later. Secondly, therefore, seasons. So we can think of the seasons of the earth as the earth rotates. Some parts have less light, some have more, and that creates seasons. It creates the, uh, the harvest seasons. It, it makes the patterns of what God causes to grow in the earth. In Minnesota right now, it's very dark. You go to work and it's dark. You come home and it's dark. And many people are depressed because of that season of darkness. But the word has more to it than that. Throughout the Bible, in the Old Testament, it's used as the word for appointed times, for festival times. And so the lights hung in the heavens, they mark out the calendar of when to come and appear before God. In Leviticus 23, it's those appointed times which call men to come and worship in his house before his presence. Those times that come, and for Israel they came as part of the lunar calendar. Each month is marked out and you count out the days from the beginning of the month when the moon rises and it's, and it's full in the sky. And then God says, on this day, on the 14th day of the first month, you come, come before me. And, and that authority to mark out the time to call God's people to worship is given to these light bearers hung in the sky. And so, again, it's a time marker. It's eschatological. It's looking forward to the fullness of what we see in Isaiah 60 and Revelation 21 and Zechariah 14, when God 
is seated in his temple, and Jesus issues forth light that does not end, and the nations stream into it. As I'm sure you can surmise, John sees Jesus as that greater light who's going to mark out new signs, new appointed times. He is the marker, the greater light by which men come and are called into God's presence. So it's for signs, for seasons, for days, and for years, but fundamentally it's with, it comes along with this idea of night and day, of time moving forward in God's plan. And as we think about this, remember that here in the beginning, before Adam and Eve are placed in the garden, before their sin, before mankind is removed, already God is looking forward to the fullness of the time when Jesus, seated in the throne in the temple, surrounded by his people, is the greater light. It's not just redemptive. This is God's plan for the world. That those signs, those festivals, the days and the years would move forward to this purpose. That the fullness of his glory would be revealed. And so he says, let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Notice then again here that the purpose of those light bearers is not just to produce the light of God, but it's directional. It's to produce the light of God for the earth. So the intent is that the light which comes from God himself, the delegated authority given to the sun, the moon, and the stars hung in the heavens is intended for earth, to cause the plants to grow, to bless mankind with the light that streams forth from God himself. And God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, the lesser light to govern the night, and he made the stars also. In God's plan, as he delegates this authority, the night is not absolute night. It's not deep darkness. Instead, there is a, a great light hung in the sky to issue forth God's light. But during the day, there is a greater light. And as we already mentioned, Israel, Israel is aligned with the evening. Their calendar is guided by the moon. By the monthly cycle, they come and worship God. And so as we come to John, John's going to reminisce on this. And Jesus, the greater light, comes in as the day and he overwhelms the night. These lights are given the job of governing, ruling. And so there's a kingly aspect to the light bearers. As you think through the Old Testament we know that God's word is a lamp unto our feet. It's a guide to bring us to him. But the ones who are supposed to be the light, the lamp, are the kings. And so David is called the lamp of Israel. They tell him, don't go out to war anymore because we don't want our lamp to be extinguished. He's the one that is a, uh, an intermediary to represent God to the people, to guide them in, in right and wrong and to make sure that the land is ruled with justice. And so attached to this idea of governing of the bodies in the heavens above, they're looking down and spreading light upon the earth. And with that light, as we all know from 1 John, light exposes sin. And so the governance of the light in the heavens is put there so that God's righteousness is on display, so that nothing can be hidden or secreted away. 
And God placed them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So he repeats those three aspects of the light bearers. They separate day and night. They give light to the earth. They mark out time and govern. There was evening and there was morning of fourth day. If you would turn back to the Gospel of John. So John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being by Him, and apart from Him, nothing has come into being that has come into being. Nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not, has not, will not overcome it. So as John is thinking about this, Jesus, the Word, his life is the light of men, but he adds to that this point. And it's because light is eschatological that John knows this. It's because of Isaiah 60 and Zechariah 14. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. It did not overtake it. So in the role of light to separate light and darkness... John sees Jesus as that light, and darkness will not conquer. And so that's our second major point. It should encourage us that as Jesus has come, as he's incarnate, the light of God in our midst, John gives us this reminder, lest we get confused, that darkness will not overtake light. And that's important. As you think through the Old Testament, it looks like it's been on the verge of darkness overtaking light many times. If you think back to 1 Samuel chapter 3, as as Samuel is born and he enters the temple and Eli's sons are full of wickedness, it says that the lamp of God was not yet out, implying that it would be. And indeed, that's exactly what happens. The lamp turns off, the Ark of the Covenant is taken by the Philistines, and That's a pattern that happens throughout the Bible. God exits one house because of of evil. He leaves and departs to, to another people. But John reminds us of this truth. Darkness did not overcome. Darkness did not overtake. Darkness will not. It's future too. And we know that because the city of light set on a hill is God's promise. The sun and the moon and the stars remind us of that promise. And John uses this word, and he uses it in two other sections in the Gospel of John. The first of those, it's with regard to the woman who was found in adultery in John chapter 8. And hopefully we'll have time to look at that briefly. But there, they come and they say this woman was overtaken by adultery. She was overtaken, you could say, by darkness. And yet in that passage, Jesus is there, and the morning is dawning, and she walks away forgiven. And then later on in John chapter 12, again, this word is used, overtaken, and Jesus is warning. He says, the light is among you for a short while. While it's among you, believe in the light, become sons of light, lest the darkness overtake you. And so there's a warning implied in this. Even here in the prologue of John, there's a promise. The darkness will not overtake the light. 
But for some, even here, the darkness will overtake them. And so we must pay attention to what Jesus, the incarnate light among us, calls us to. Verse 6, There came a man sent from God whose name was John, and he came for a witness that he might bear witness of the light that all might believe through him. And he was not the light, but came that he might bear witness of the light. So if we think of that first statement by John, the darkness will not overcome it, the fundamental job of light, there will be a separation of light from darkness, and the darkness will not ever win that battle. But here, in the next verse, he immediately switches tracks, and he says, there came a man sent from, sent from God. It's a strange transition his name was John. He came for a witness that he might bear witness of the light so that all might believe, but he was not the light. Just listen to what John says. The word, in the beginning was the word. The word was, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. The word was, the word was, the word was. Here comes a man sent from John. He was not. He was not the light. He was not the word. But he was sent as a witness of the light. And John is the last of the Old Testament witnesses. So he comes as the last of the lesser light bearers. We read in John chapter 5 that John the Baptist is called a lamp. A torch burning, lighting the way that you can rejoice in for a short while, but the evening is coming to a close. And here in the beginning, we find that John, this one that's a lamp, he's like the moon, he's lesser. He points the way to what's greater. The greater light is coming, and as he comes, John will be removed. He's nothing, and he says so with his own words. I, the one who comes after me is a higher rank than I. He's the king. He's the one, the greater light, the one who comes to rule and govern, to bring justice, to fulfill all the promises of Isaiah. And then in verse 9, we see this. There was the true light. John uses this word true. It's set in opposition to Israel. Jesus was the true light. Israel was supposed to be a light, and they, they fell short. Jesus was the true light, but it's also looking back to creation. Jesus is the true and greater light, the morning star, the sunrise from on high who's come to visit us. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man, and he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. And so as the greater light comes, the one through whom the very world was made, the world did not know him, and his own did not receive him. And so again, we're looking back at that, that separation, that battle between light and darkness, the one in which God holds forth the light. The darkness will not overcome, but here we see the trouble. The light comes, the greater light comes, and the world that he made did not receive him. His own people, Israel, did not take him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of man, nor of the, fle nor the will of the flesh, but of God. 
Here in the beginning of John, we see this separating work of the light. Light separates from darkness. And as John will say, Jesus, Jesus say, those whose deeds are evil, they love darkness and they hate the light. And so when the true light comes, those whose deeds are evil, they look backwards. Remember that light is eschatological. It moves us forward in God's plan to the end. And the separating mark is that men whose deeds are evil always look back. You want to be in the darkness, in what was before. We have a temptation to do this too, to be nostalgic, to look at what was before, failing to recognize that God is moving us forward in history for good. He's bringing to fruition the goodness of his plans, and so we cannot turn back into darkness. And there's a hint here of what Jesus is going to teach, that now that the greater light is here, the lesser light is overwhelmed. And so to look back to Israel, to look back to what, what was, to the house that God met with Israel in, you're looking back now to darkness because the true and the greater light has come. But to those who receive him, because the light will overcome, the light is victorious, but to those who receive him, he gives the right to be children of God. Even to those who believe in his name and they're born... This is what it means to receive him, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And John is going to exegete on this in chapter 3 with Nicodemus. And then finally in this prologue, verse 14, The word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. It's a verse we know well. The Word became flesh. Jesus came as a man, God of gods, dwelling in the midst of mankind. And the light of the world, which gives life, comes to earth. And John, as he, as he thinks about this, and there's many, many, many truths embedded in this single verse, but what I want us to see is that the effect that John sees of the word becoming flesh, the primary effect is that we see. We see his glory. And so as the light comes in, in the person of Jesus, he opens eyes so that we can see. He goes on in this prologue to say, no man has seen God at any time, but the word become flesh, the light of God, he exegetes him. We see him. And so the light of God now, the greater light coming, he opens eyes as he opens the eyes of the blind man in John chapter 9. In his light, as the psalmist says in Psalm 36, we see light. And that's the purpose of the signs and the festivals of moving forward with days and the years is to bring us into the presence of God. To bring us where we could not be. So those appointed times, they're to call us into his presence. And here, Jesus comes as the tabernacle, the presence of God dwelling among men, and we see his glory. Glory that is only, only comes with the one who's the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And embedded in this, we see 
as he moves on, that he overwhelms the law. For of his fullness we've all received grace upon grace, grace in place of grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. And so with the advent of the light, we see God. God enfleshed as man. And so what we'll find out is that this greater light... He's the one that now calls the appointed times. He's the one that issues forth the signs. And so if you think your way through the book of John, he gives seven signs so that we might believe, so that we might see him. There's seven festivals also through the book of John, but we'll see that Jesus is concerned with his own time. On repeat throughout John's gospel is, my time has not yet come, my hour has not yet come. In fact, he refuses in... In John chapter 7, to go up at the beginning of the Feast of Booths because he says, my time, my hour is not yet here. Jesus says the greater light is the one who sets the appointed times. He sets the end of the cycle of coming into the presence of God. And so the feasts are renewed under the governance of the greater and true light, Jesus himself. He marks out the signs. He marks out the festivals. And in him... The tabernacle, we come to God. So you see there, even in the prologue, John is seeing the fulfillment of light in Jesus. He takes the same three purposes of light and he ascribes them to Jesus himself. If you would, let's move forward to John chapter 3. The subject of light takes up the middle of the Gospel of John. So chapters 7, 8, and 9 are about Jesus as the light of the world. And as we discussed before, John one, one view of John is to see God moving through the tabernacle and the fulfillment of the entire tabernacle in Jesus. And so as you come to the middle, you come to the lampstand, marking the way into God. And it's it's not till we get to the end of the Gospel of John that we see the veil torn open and that light opening the way all, all the way into the presence of God. But here in John chapter 3, we begin our discussion of Jesus as the light in the main part of the Gospel of John. But it's only just, just hinting at Jesus' fulfillment as the true and greater light. And so we'll read just a, a few verses here out of John chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So he was a, a governor. He was a ruler of the Jews, and the man came to him by night. And this, this is repeated. Nicodemus shows up three times in the Gospel of John. The second time we're reminded that, that Nicodemus is the guy who came to Jesus. The third time we're reminded again that he's the guy who came to Jesus by night. It's important. Nicodemus arrives in the night because he's a representative of the Old Covenant. He comes as a ruler. He's responsible for light-bearing under the Old Covenant. But he comes to Jesus. He came to him by night in verse 2, and he says to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. 
Nicodemus has seen the signs of the true and the greater light. And he recognizes that this is, this is better. These signs replace what we have. And so he says, you must have come from God as a teacher. And hold that in your mind because that thought of Nicodemus, you must have come from God as a teacher because no one can do these signs unless God is with him. That's going to be the, the idea that governs the section on Jesus as light. But Jesus answered, and he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it. But you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus tells Nicodemus, if you want to see, you must be born from above. If you want to see God's kingdom, then he says a second time, if you want to enter God's kingdom, you must be born from above. You must have a heavenly patronage. You have to be born of the water and the Spirit, and this is what it looks like. Like the wind, no one knows where you come from or where you're going. You're spirit-filled. We're not going to read through the rest of this section. I want you to hold that again in your minds as we come to chapter 7. But first, let's look at how Jesus ends his conversation with Nicodemus in verse 17. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who practices truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. And so here we see, again, Jesus is the light, and the fundamental purpose of light is to separate light from darkness. And so this is the judgment. The light is coming to the world, and men love darkness rather than light. It's a message to Nicodemus. He comes in the dark. He comes in the, in the evening. But now the true and greater light is here. He's called upon believe. Believe, see, enter the kingdom of God. To do so, you must be born from above, to have eyes to see. And it's not until later in the book that we can understand the depths of what that means. So if you would, let's move forward to John chapter 7. And we're not going to read all of this, but I, I want to read a, a few sections here in John chapter 7 to understand the context of what Jesus is answering when he says, I am the light of the world in John 8. John chapter 7, after these things Jesus was walking in Galilee, he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was at hand. And his brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may behold your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret 
when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And so the disciples say, we've seen your signs. Now elevate yourself. Show them on display. Show us the true and greater light. Do these works in public so that everybody can know. But we have this note in verse 5. Not even his brothers were believing in him. They did not understand the appointed time of the true and the greater light. They didn't yet see. Jesus said, my time is not yet at hand. Your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet come. And so here we see Jesus' time. He's, he is redefining the appointed time for the festival. He says, my time, my appointed time as the greater light that governs the timing of God meeting with man. My time has not yet come. So in verse, in verse 10, he goes in the middle of the feast. And if you would, let's skip down to verse 14. But when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up in the temple and he began to teach. And the Jews therefore were marveling, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? Jesus therefore answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If any man is willing to do his will, he shall know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The question that they have is, here's Jesus, he's teaching, and he teaches with authority. But they say, who is this guy? It's, this, it's the opposite of what Nicodemus said, right? Nicodemus came in and he said, you do signs that only one coming from God, only one sent from God could do. You are a teacher. But they say, who? Who sent him? What kind of teacher is he? And so there's this question hanging out there. Where are his credentials? What education does he have? Where is he from? And so Jesus, as he's speaking, he says, my teaching is not mine, but the one who sent me. If any man is willing to do his will, he shall know of the teaching, whether it is from God or whether I speak for myself. And so Jesus' response is, I teach God. I'm the lamp that lights the way to God as the light of the world. And we'll see that in the next chapter that ultimately that is Jesus' answer. I am the light of the world, but that light emanates forth from God himself. So Jesus is the light coming from God the Father. And here that expression is in his teaching. And so the next few verses, he's going to answer their, their questions about why he healed on the Sabbath. But he does so by using the words of the law. But he is not, it's not just of the law. So his teaching, his greater light, while not in contrast with the law, comes instead directly from God. It's true and better. It's greater. If you would skip down to verse 25, and I'll, I'll tie these ends up in the next chapter here in just a minute. Therefore some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? And look, he's speaking publicly, and they're saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? And so the, the crowds are looking on at a man teaching with authority, and, 
and they know that the Pharisees are seeking to kill him, and yet they don't do anything because it's not his appointed time. And so their, their question is, well, did they know this is really the Christ? However, we know where this man is from. But whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. And so they, they have, this, have this conclusion that no one can know where Christ is from. So he must not be the Christ, because we know that he is from Galilee. Jesus therefore cried out in the temple, saying, You both know me, and you know where I am from, that I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. Recall again what Nicodemus said. The signs that you do must mean that you are sent from God. And here Jesus' response is the same. You say that you know me. You think that you know where I am from. But he who sent me is true, and you don't know him. I know him because I'm from him, and he sent me. They were seeking, therefore, to seize him, but no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Skip over to verse 40. Some of the multitude, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, This certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, This is the Christ. Still others were saying, Surely Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So now they have two standards. Two sects of people are saying two different things. One says the Christ, he can't be Christ because we know where he's from, and the Christ, nobody can know where he's from. And the other sect says he can't be the Christ because he's from Galilee, and scripture in Micah chapter 5 says the Christ must come from Bethlehem. And so there are two seemingly mutually exclusive identifications of who the Christ is, and they both come down to the conclusion this could not be him. So there arose a division in verse 43 in the multitude because of him. And some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers therefore came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they said to him, Why do you not bring him? And the officers answered, Never did a man speak the way this man speaks. And the Pharisees therefore answered him, saying, You have not also been led astray, have you? No, one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this multitude which does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus said to them, He who came to him him before, being one of them, our law does not judge a man, unless it first hears from him, and it knows what he is doing. Does it? And they answered him, You're not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Now if we, just for a minute, remove the section in the beginning of chapter 8, the conversation continues to flow. Nicodemus said, we don't judge a man until, until we hear from him. We don't judge by appearance only. And Jesus responds to these accusations, and his response to all of chapter 7 is in verse 12. I am the light of the world. Embedded in that is a reference looking back to, to Isaiah 52, to Isaiah 60, to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, and to Zechariah chapter 14. I am the light of the world. Remember in, we won't turn there, but in Isaiah 9, that Christmas passage that talks about the sun coming and the government resting upon his shoulders, it's introduced this way. 
that in Galilee of the Gentiles, a great light will come, a glorious light will come in the midst of darkness. And Jesus says, I am that light. You say that the Christ, no one can know where it comes from. You say that the Christ, he can't come from Galilee, he must come, come, come from Bethlehem. But I am the light of Isaiah chapter 9, the king that comes to rule and might to bring justice, the prince of peace. I am he. I am the light of the world. But at the same time, it references Zechariah 14. If you recall, Zechariah 14 is also about a coming celebration of the Feast of Booths. In that day, there will be no luminary. The luminaries will dwindle. There will be no day or night, but there will be light. And in that day, from the Mount of Olives, which is where Jesus is coming from, it will split in half, one foot on each half, and God will be king over all. Jesus is saying, I am that light, the light that comes into the whole world. And in that day, in Zechariah chapter 14, there will no longer be a Canaanite in the midst of the house of Israel, not because there's no Canaanites, but because there's no unclean people. God has cleansed them. I am the light of the world that's come, and every nation now will come to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And so his declaration in the midst of this festival is, it's my appointed time. I am the light that's coming to fulfill God's plan for the world. All the nations will come. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. Embedded in this, we can also see a reference back to a fulfillment of the law. The law was called the light of God. And yet here Jesus is that light. The law of Christ overwhelms the law. The festivals, the appointed times of Christ, overwhelm the old festivals. The true and the greater light is here, and the implications are for the whole world. Now, in the middle of this answer, we have the story of John 8, verses 1 through 12. In the middle of Jesus' answer, I am the light of the world, this is what we see. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. And so John inserts this story here. It explains who Jesus is as the light. It explains the effects of Jesus as the light of the world, because here, coming from the Mount of Olives into the temple, it's early morning, the day is dawning, and Jesus teaches, and the scribes and the Pharisees bring a woman who's overtaken by adultery. Remember back to John chapter 1, verse, verse 5. The light is come and the darkness will not overtake it, but here this woman is overtaken in adultery. And they said to Jesus in verse 4, Teacher, this woman has been overtaken by adultery. Now the law of Moses commands us to stone such women. What then do you say? And they were saying this, testing him, in order that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger he wrote in the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up, and he said, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground, and when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older one, and he was left alone, and the woman where she was in the midst. And straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way from now on. Sin no more. 
So in the middle of this discussion of who is Jesus, why is he a teacher, what law is he teaching, where is he come from, and where is he going, we have this story. The light's dawning over the temple. Jesus is there as that light. And a woman overtaken in darkness comes in. And the law is set against to challenge her, to accuse her. And Jesus' response is to write with his finger in the ground. So he stoops and he writes. And it reminds us of the writing of the law by the finger of God on Mount Sinai. And it reminds us of the writing by the finger of God on the wall of Belteshazzar with the lampstand in front. There's a light lighting and the, the, the hand writes. And it writes that you've been made, weighed, you've been measured, and you've been found wanting. And that's exactly what happens here. Those who love darkness, their deeds are evil and they run away. They disappear into the outer banks of the temple and the woman is left standing. Notice she could have run away at this point, but she's standing there in the light. And Jesus says, do any of these condemn you? Neither do I. Go your way and sin no more. This is what Jesus does as the light of the world. He says to us, while I'm here, while there is light, come and believe. Come, be born from above. Have your sins exposed and then become a son of light. One more story in chapter 9. So you finish this section of Jesus as the light in the Gospel of John. We're just on the tail end of the Feast of Tabernacles. And in verse, chapter 9, verse 1, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples said, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? And Jesus answered, It was neither this man, neither that this man sinned, nor his parents, but it was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me. As long as it is day, night is coming when no man can work. While I am in the world, I am in the light of the world. We're not going to look at the details of this, but here Jesus and John are completing our picture of what Jesus does as the light. He opens our eyes like this blind man. In his light, we see light. He forgives and he cleanses like he does for the lady in John chapter 8. She stands in light. And he says, I do not condemn you. She is forgiven. And yet those who love darkness, the scribes and the Pharisees, who refuse to look forward into God's plan and provision for his people, they turn back into darkness. And there's nothing left. I want to turn to two more passages as we think about the application of Jesus coming as light. The incarnation of God in our midst as the light of the world. First, let's turn to 1 John chapter 1. And again, a passage we should know well. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. This is the message. 
This is the message. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Remember, the purpose of light is to separate light from darkness, day from night, to mark signs, seasons, days, years, and to govern. God is light. He does all of these. In him there is no darkness at all. A new day is dawn. The morning star has come. And so John says, if you've heard this message, that Jesus, the light of the world, has come, then this is what you must do. If you say, if we say that we have fellowship with him and you walk in darkness, we lie and we don't practice the truth. But if we walk in light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with him and with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. Jesus the light comes, and the only response is to receive light. If we hide, if we cover ourselves, if we run away from the light, backwards or into the shadows, there is no fellowship with God. So this year, as we think about the coming of Jesus, the coming of the light of the world, this is God's encouragement to us. Don't hide. Don't blame one another for our sins. Don't blame our government, our government for our sin. Don't cover up. Instead, walk in light. And John, he tells us what that means. It doesn't mean we have no sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But walking in light is this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from every unrighteousness. So when Jesus the light comes and we are open, no hiding, no covering like Adam and Eve in the garden at the first advent, Jesus comes and we're exposed. The wonderful message is, if we stay, he cleanses us. And that cleansing, it changes everything so that we love our brothers. And that's the evidence that we're standing, walking in light. If you would turn to one final passage, this time a Pauline passage in Ephesians chapter 5. And I want to conclude with, with this. You were formerly darkness, but now you are light. Now you are light in the world. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Understanding what is pleasing to the Lord. And do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful to speak of things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. Consider that. Consider what Paul says as he thinks about the exact same passages. All things become visible when they are exposed to light. Everything that becomes visible is light. We're called to walk in light, and Paul says, not just to walk in it, but to be light. It's an extension of what Jesus says, 
be born again, you, you're given the right to be called children of God, sons of light, to be light. And so in the picture of the city of light in Revelation 21, we're added as precious stones through which the light of God comes and is filtered and it glorifies Him and it glorifies us. Walk in the light and be light. And when the light comes, everything that is exposed, everything that is made visible is light. Paul's teaching us that our sin uncovered, cleansed, and forgiven, made visible, it becomes light. And so we are added into God's light so that in Matthew, he takes what Jesus said, I am the light of the world, and he applies it to us. He says, you are the light of the world. The greater light has come, but all is not done yet. And so Jesus says, I am the light while I'm in the world, but what now? The answer is now. Now that Jesus sits in the heavens, his body, us, we are that light. And the only way to effectively be that light is to walk in light, to have all made visible, and to be light. So let's celebrate our Savior, and let's follow him. If you would pray with me. Father, we thank you that our Savior Jesus has come. We thank you that he's come as the light of the world, the life-giving light of the world, and he gives life of himself. We thank you that he's come as the greater and the true light which exposes our sins and yet cleanses them. We thank you, Lord, that we stand in this light in your presence. Lord, help us to rejoice in it this Christmas as we think about Jesus and his, in his coming to us. Lord, he came to us and for us, we stand and we come without fear, called by the signs of Christ into the presence of Christ. And Lord, we follow now in the new order, looking first to our Savior as the one who marks out times and seasons and days as the one who calls us into your presence. And so, Lord, we do that out of obedience to you. Lord, help us to do that with nothing hidden, with no darkness, but instead having confessed and been made clean as you promised, having been cleansed from every unrighteousness. We pray these things in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.